If you're one of those weirdos that believes you're going to heaven, would you say amen? Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad to be part of you. Yeah, that's a good weird. We are going to be looking at Matthew 6 this morning, and I wonder if you have a Bible with you, if you would take it out and go to Matthew 6. If you don't own a Bible, they're in the uh, racks underneath the chairs in front of you. Uh, maybe if you don't own one, there's free Bibles in the back in the atrium on the table by the information area. Um, any of those could apply to you. Maybe you have it electronically, but you could also follow along on the screen. You'll be able to watch up there. Last week, we established, and we're working through these parables, that it really requires the discipline of dedicated time. We have to go through it at a pace. And so we prayed specifically that God would slow us down. We said, slow us down, Lord. Help us to be really deliberate about the way that we're approaching this so we really understand the way that Jesus intended for us to approach this. So in the process, if you weren't here last week, um, we used Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah, as a sample of an Old Testament parable, speaking of the potter and the clay and the way that God works with things like the description within that parable. Specifically, that parable applied to the nation of Israel when they're living in uh, disobedience to God and violently opposed to Him. And so God had to take them and reshape them and mold them. And He said, this is my right, this is my privilege to be able to do this. But with the parables, He shows us how they functioned in the ancient world. And He speaks about Himself and He speaks consistently about His nature and His character, what His kingdom is like and what eternity is going to be like. Well, as we find ourselves diving into the parables this morning, we find that we have to once again remind ourselves what Jesus was doing here. You may have already looked in your notes this morning and seen the word parable again, the definition for it. I want you to see it up on the screen again. It, it's referring to something being laid alongside, a comparison. You might remember that from last week when you were here. And Jesus uses them a lot. He uses these comparisons over 33% of the time that he's teaching. Most of his communication, especially toward the end of his life, was through parables. We see that referred to in Matthew 13, 2 and 3. It says, he spoke many things to them in parables. Well, in the ancient world, this was a teaching technique. And the teaching technique was intended to expand the mind to help people lay something of the material and physical world alongside something of the spiritual world to make sense of it. You see that especially in things like when Jesus said, if you've got a log in your own eye, don't be trying to do eye surgery on someone with just a speck in their eye. Using something from the physical world, laying it alongside the spiritual world. So that's the big idea with the parables. Taking something, laying alongside of something else for the purpose of comparison to teach and to rebuke and to warn, and to look to a promise. And that tells us where we're headed this morning, where we're headed in this journey, where we're gonna move at a, at a pace, right? And so this is the second week of our foundation for this. In order to really understand the parables and what Jesus is talking about, we have to understand God's vision for his kingdom. And what does he mean when he says the kingdom of heaven is like this? or the kingdom of heaven is like unto this. And he does that a lot with the parables. So in order to really understand Jesus' parables, we've got to understand the kingdom. And God chose the metaphor of a kingdom to paint a picture. And the picture that he's painting is, what does it look like under his perfect rule? What will it be like in that future kingdom? And when I talk about perfect rule, rule, we're talking about a time when there will be a true and righteous king who's on the throne, and he will rule with justice. In other words, there will be no political parties whatsoever. 
There'll be no warring. Somebody said hallelujah to that, right? There'll be no fighting. There'll be no contention. There'll be no lying. There'll be no cheating. There'll be no deception. It won't exist because there will be a king on the throne and he will rule in righteousness. Well, throughout Scripture, God foretells a time when he's going to bring about this literal perfect kingdom and he's going to bring it about here on earth. And we find Jesus referring to this many times, multiple times when he speaks, but especially when he tells us to begin telling God, we would like God for you to bring it. Let me give you an example of that. You look on the screen with me at Matthew 6. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Most people recognize that. You could shout it out and tell me what you think that's coming from. Lord's Prayer, right? We've, we've given it a title. Even our Bibles, many times, if you open up your Bible, it says right at the header, it says the Lord's Prayer, and Jesus goes on to speak about it. There's no doubt that most people in society recognize that phrase. It's pretty famous. It's quoted time and time and time again. I watched with fascination when it was used 10 years ago, 2009, an exchange of leaders within our country. To be specific, January of 2009, President Bush was stepping down from his responsibilities. President Obama was coming into his responsibilities. And Barack Obama had chosen to have Rick Warren speak at the national event called the inauguration. And I absolutely watched with fascination as Rick Warren, in the midst of all of his prepared thoughts, began reciting the Lord's Prayer. Now, knowing that Rick's a pastor and he leads a large church in California, I wasn't terribly surprised that he began using the Lord's Prayer. What I was fascinated by is as the cameras from around the world began panning the audience, it picked up multiple thousands of people who were saying it along with him. Some just stared because they didn't know what Rick was doing, but others joined in and, and they solemnly put their head down and they began saying the Lord's Prayer. And I watched with fascination as what we call the Lord's Prayer is brought into play. And here's why. It's especially captivating because the Lord's Prayer is all about a theocracy, a kingdom. It's not about a democracy. We live in a democracy, but that's not what the Lord's Prayer is about. And I was surprised and a little bit confused, and then I started realizing, oh, I get why Rick's doing what he's doing. He's bringing in the reality that it's about a future kingdom. It's really crucial that we understand the parables this way, that we understand what Jesus was talking about when he said there's going to be a kingdom. And it's crucial that we understand it because he spoke completely from this agenda. All of his agenda was about God pursuing and establishing this type of a future for his people, that there would be a future kingdom for you and me. And apart from knowing this type of framework, apart from knowing this agenda, the parables really don't make any sense. So I'm going to ask you to dive with me into just those four sentences that are in the very beginning of what we call the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6 and show you what Jesus was really driving at. On this particular occasion in Matthew 6, and you also find it in Luke chapter 11, here's what's going on. God the Son, we talked about this in September. God the Son condescends to earth, becomes Jesus the man, and Jesus the man, God the Son, co-equal, the same person, is talking to God the Father, and the disciples are listening in, like eavesdropping. And when Jesus finishes, someone comes up to him and says, how do we do that? 
We don't know how to pray that way. What don't we know? What do we need to know? This is the way they actually phrased it. Luke 11, 1 says it this way. It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place and after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples. So Jesus is nearing the end of his life. And he's got some individuals around him. The disciples have been with him for a while now. They've been with him actually for a few years. And here's a few of them who aren't sure they know how to connect with God. And so they're listening in to Jesus speak of things that they haven't heard. And what they hear is different than what they hear in their own synagogue and what they hear out in society. They've been in religion all their life and they're hearing something different from Jesus. And, and that's why we see them saying, we need to understand this. What are you referring to here? We've been raised in a culture that's given us a different framework. This, this has got to make more sense to us. So catch this. They have an understanding of God, but they have an understanding of God that's been passed down to them through tradition, and they've been exposed to it all their life through the society that they live in, through the culture that they're part of. And when they hear Jesus speak in a way that's not like their culture, it's not like their society, it's not like their tradition, different than what they normally hear, that's why they're going, what? I want to make sense of this. How do I do this better? How do I connect with God? Uh, maybe for an example, this would help you. As a child, I was taught a, a pre-meal prayer by my mom. Mom taught each of us, there's five children in my family, and so as we sat down to eat, mom taught us this memorized prayer, and we did it all the time as children, and it goes like this. God is great, God is good, let us thank him for our food. By his hands we all are fed, let us thank him for our bread, or give us, Lord, this daily bread, or something like that. See, I've forgotten even these many years later. So maybe you've heard that. Maybe you had a memorized prayer you were taught. Well, that just becomes rote memory, and pretty soon by the time you know it so well, you're just repeating it over and over and over again. It's great for laying a foundation for a child. It's great for demonstrating that they really should pray and thank God for their food. But it just became rehearsed with me over a period of time. Well, Jesus said that's a potential habit. By the time the first century rolled around, the Jewish leaders in Israel, they had adopted a pattern by which they were talking with God in rote memory by rehearsed things, and it was very, very repetitious. And so you find Jesus saying things like this in Matthew 6. Do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose they'll be heard for their many words. See, with Jesus, the repetition wasn't there. He's praying from his heart. He went to private places and he really spoke to God about the kingdom of God. So they're left confused and they want to understand. So this is where Jesus goes in Matthew chapter 6, Matthew 6, 9. Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the Old Testament, there was this sense in which God was unapproachable. And he's very far off, and you can't get near to him. And it was especially driven home when the temple was built, because there was a holy of holies, and inside the temple was this inner room, and everyone who wanted to be near God was separated from God, because only the priest and only the high priest could go into the holy of holies, and then only once a year... Everyone else had to remain outside by the area of the sacrifices. 
So God's distant, God's separated from them. And then you find in the book of Exodus, God saying things to Moses like, when the people come to Mount Sinai, Moses, don't let them touch the mountain, don't let them even come near it or they will perish. So they have this fear of God, this awesome, holy fear, and God's unapproachable. And then Jesus shows up on the scene. And you find him calling God Father. When you pray, pray in this way, our Father who is in heaven. Well, Father is the word Abba. Abba means pater or or daddy. Abba is the father image, the father figure. What does that express to you this morning? It expresses nearness. If you've had a healthy father relationship, I recognize not everybody's had a healthy image of a father on planet Earth. But in this case, the way that Jesus is using it, it's talking of something very loving, something very familial. It's like throwing a warm blanket of brightness over a cold child at night, something that comforts you. He's using this in a really intimate and very respectful way. Now, we know today in the church that Jesus' death brought us into a new relationship. He brought us into a place where we can be reconciled with God, making it possible for us to become his spiritual children. So Jesus comes along and he says, I'm giving you permission to talk to God, the one you thought of as far away and as distant from you, to talk to him as though he is your father. You and I can address him as father. Let me back that up with scripture with you. Look with me at John 20, verse 17. This is immediately after the resurrection. Jesus said to her, he's speaking to Mary here, Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my father, and your Father, to my God, and your God, or this one from Romans 8.15. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. So Jesus is immediately within the first phrase established a relationship that's totally different than what everyone else knew in the first century. God's not distant. He doesn't have to be distant. If you're adopted by him, you're a spiritual child, you call him your father, He's intimate to you in that way. And then watch where Jesus goes next, this transition over. He says, hallowed be your name. What he's doing there is he's saying this is a form of worship. Hallowed actually equals out to sanctified. Or the word hagiadzo, you see it in your notes this morning. It's in the Greek language. It means to make something holy or or to consecrate it. Here's what we understand about that. When you're saying, hallowed be your name, God, your name is holy, I lift you up, I recognize with great respect who you are, that's an act of worship. That's what it means to make something holy. Just as much as when Michael leads you through worship with singing, it's the same thing, it's the same form of worship. You're lifting God up and celebrating Him. That's why the writers of the Psalms said in Psalm 111, holy and awesome is His name. But then there's another transition. And this transition shows us what the priority is for Jesus all of his life, and it's why the parables are so significant. The first thing at the very top of the list, after he's acknowledged the relationship, after he says, your name is holy, is this issue, your kingdom come, Matthew 6.10. In the Old Testament, you find consistently that God assured us, there's a new kingdom coming, and it's just on the horizon. 
There's a time when the Messiah will arrive in victory. Now follow the flow of what you've seen so far. He's established the relationship by saying, Father. He's established who it is by saying, you're holy. And it's directly followed by the most significant issue because the Lord's Prayer is in descending order. You look at it again very closely and you'll see the first thing that he mentions is the perfect rule of God. So here's what Jesus is doing. He's reaching forward and he's painting a picture for you. And it's not even a parable, but it's kind of a parable. He's reaching forward to something that you haven't yet seen, the kingdom. And he says, bring your kingdom, your kingdom come. He's reaching forward to the everlasting kingdom. Robert Jameson is an Old Testament, no, not an Old Testament, Old and New Testament, but he's an old dead theologian. And he said this in the 1800s. This irresistibly stretches the wings of our faith and longing and joyous expectation out to the final and glorious consummation of the kingdom of God. It's kind of wordy. It's kind of complicated. It's the way you would expect somebody to speak in the 1800s. But what he's taking is the kingdom of God. And he's saying, this is what Jesus is doing. He's reaching forward. And he's saying, there's something that's out there for you, waiting for you. Bring it, God. I'm asking you this morning, when is the last time that you allowed yourself to anticipate what is waiting for you? I ask that because I anticipate other things in a typical week. We all do it. I anticipate the meetings that will take place tomorrow, the responsibilities of the week ahead of me. You're probably thinking about if you've got to get your brakes fixed or if you've got to get your oil changed or what work responsibilities or school responsibilities. We anticipate that because it's right there. It's in the immediate. I've had many occasions when I anticipate by looking forward I look forward to vacations. I look forward to evenings out. I look forward to family times. I, I anticipate with great expectation sporting events only to be let down, right? <laughs> because most of those things we look forward to don't measure up to the image that we have in our mind. So we can be heard saying things like, it's going to be epic. I can't wait. What a smackdown they're going to get. What a great vacation I'm going to have. The meal we're about to enjoy, it's going to be fantastic. Well, not really. Sometimes it's much less than. And so we lower the bar. But God's saying, as you look forward, as you're anticipating what God has waiting for you, what he has committed to you, what he's promised the arrival of his perfect kingdom, it's beyond what's imagined. He actually says, eye has never seen, ear has never heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man all the things that God has prepared for those who love him. I can imagine some fantastic things. But God says you can't even begin to imagine this. And Jesus is telling us in one aspect, it's still to come. Don't lose focus of what's out there. So one thing I would ask you this morning is, do you pray for the arrival of God's kingdom? Do you pray for that, for the return of Christ? Well, if you're like me, if we're going to just be honest with ourselves, many times we find ourselves looking forward to Jesus' return when we see the bad news headlines. We read about one more war, one more disease, one more murder, and we can find ourselves saying, come, Lord Jesus. But that's out of despair. 
That's out of just not wanting to endure anymore. And Jesus is telling us right up at the very front, ask God to bring the kingdom. Even so, come Lord Jesus. But then there's this next step, and this is the hardest part of this morning. This next part, Matthew 6, 9, and 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, there's a qualifier, on earth as it is in heaven. We'll come back to that as we close in just a minute. Let's hit this issue, though, of your will be done. To see the whole globe, this entire planet that we live on, conforming to the will of God, what a day that will be. Like, how awesome would that be? To see the entire planet conform to the will of God. The purpose and the focus of the parables is all about God's will being done on earth because that's his agenda. His agenda is all about God's perfect rule and God's perfect will. That's what the parables are about. And that's what Jesus is driving forward towards. So Jesus is telling me, as I read this correctly, he's telling me that even my most personal request of him, even the things that are most important to me, I have to test all of those personal requests by that overruling concern. Yeah, my daily bread is important. Yeah, forgive me my debts, that's important. Yeah, forgive those who debt against me and, and lead me not into temptation. All of that is really important, but what's at the top of the list? God's will. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we know this is true because Jesus continually modeled that issue. At the climax of his life, the most important thing on his mind is the will of God. What happened the night before the crucifixion? Jesus is arrested, but before he's arrested, he's in the garden. And when he's in the garden, what do we hear him saying to God the Father in prayer? God the Son talking to God the Father, if it's possible. Let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. See, Jesus was committed to seeing God's will accomplished throughout his entire life. It's the theme of his life. What does that look like for you in 2019? How do I bring that home to my life? Well, to say your will be done is an act of submission. Coming to the place where you're yielding to God to do what he desires, and I promise you, it is the single hardest thing you will ever ask God to do. And it sounds like this. God, whatever you have to do, do it. Whatever you have to do in my family life, whatever you have to do with my marriage, whatever you have to do with my career, whatever you have to do with my social life, do it. That's what it means to put God's will first. And it's the hardest thing you will ever ask God for because you're yielding in submission to his will. And we know when we get to that place where we invite God to do that, the hardest part is he takes us up on it. He will do that. That's why the significance of the potter with the clay was so important last week for us to understand. Israel was not in the place where they were willing to be conformed to God's will, and God had to shape them to get his will done. And sometimes it's very hard pinch when the potter has to do that. 
A point of clarification for us, when we say your will be done, that is not a fatalistic resignation like, okay, I can't win, I give up on this. Jesus is not a fatalist. He was not a fatalist in the garden. What you see him doing is bearing his humanness of his soul. His heart is right out there on the platter, and he's revealing his ultimate desire for this one issue, for God's will to be done no matter what. So your will be done is not only the focus of every single parable that you're going to read in the months ahead of you. What it also does is it acknowledges that you're trusting that his way is best because when you say, God, whatever you have to do, you have to trust him that whatever he's going to do is going to be for your good and not for your harm, even though it might feel like it initially. So it's the focus of the parable, your will be done, but it's also that we're trusting him and we're committing to actively work to further the performance of his will. Now recognize, we're speaking of the God who said, let there be light, and there was light. So his will is accomplished when he wants his will accomplished. But there's another aspect of God's will, and this really applies to your life this morning. There's another aspect of his will called his revealed will. People who study the Bible, theologians who spend a lot of time with it, they recognize what that is. It's God's will, something that he reveals, but he doesn't force upon you. Let me give you an example of that. It's God's will that we would speak the truth in love. Say amen if you agree with that. Okay, that's right out of Scripture. Speak the truth, but speak the truth in love. But it's also God's will that we would not commit adultery. It's also God's will that we would not get drunk. Well, that's God's revealed will. This is what I will for you So there's that aspect of it to which we have to commit ourselves actively to engage and say, I'm going to participate in that. We take an active role in participating in accomplishing the will of God. And then there's one final aspect to this. This one last aspect is when we say your will be done, we're asking God to also at the same time increase righteousness in the world to bring more people to himself. By that, the kingdom of God is expanded Because we know he is not willing, it's his will, he is not willing that any would perish, but people do perish because they reject his will. So it's part of his revealed will. I don't will that anyone would perish, but people do reject me. So to these issues and all that we've mentioned here in that category, a committed believer in Christ would say, That's me. As much as it's in me, as much as the power is within me, through me, through the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to do my part. I'm going to commit myself to accomplishing that part of God's will. I I know you know this stuff, especially if you've been at New Hope for any length of time. You know this. You would have never committed to building this building if you didn't agree with me. You know how important it is to God to expand his kingdom, that his will would be done here on earth as it's done in heaven. But this is the qualifier that's hardest for us, and this is where we end this morning. Look at that last part, Matthew 6.10. On earth as it is in heaven. What do we know about heaven? Angels carry out God's will. Joyfully, immediately, perfectly, and they don't enter into debate with God. I know it's your will, God, but I got a better plan. I think I'm going to go do this. 
Now, that'll get you kicked out of heaven. That's what Lucifer found out, right? Angels carry out God's will perfectly and immediately. What would that be like? Here's my struggle. This may not be true of you, but I'll just speak of Mark Kring. My struggle is I have a kringdom, right? And my kringdom is really important to me. My kingdom is something that's precious to me because it represents the things that I possess. And too often, my focus is on my world. It's on my possessions, the things that I've been blessed with. I'm responsible to steward over those things. I get that. But what I find in Scripture, especially what Jesus is talking about here, I have to turn the tables on myself because my temptation is to say, my will be done. I want it my way. And Jesus calls me to deny myself. It's no accident that you find Paul writing in the New Testament, I die daily. Because he knows, he identifies with us, you identify with me, we all face this exact same struggle. The temptation that we have is to focus on the things of this world. And this involves understanding that God's kingdom has not yet been fully established. Yes, absolutely, Jesus won the victory. Yes, Jesus defeated death. Yes, Jesus defeated sin. He won the victory for every one of us, and if you believe in Jesus, you are destined for eternity in heaven. But the reality is the implementation of the full victory has not been realized yet. The elimination of all sin that pulls at you and all its temptation, it's still present. It's still part of this world. So when you're saying, bring your kingdom, your kingdom come, your yearning is not just for the coming of Christ in the future. You're really expressing a desire to say, I want this increasingly established throughout the world. I want it present in my life. It begins with me here and now. That's why Romans 12:1 says this. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Here's the last part before I send you out the door. We know that there's a requirement for entrance into God's kingdom. And the requirement is God's righteousness, his own righteousness. In other words, to dwell in his kingdom, we have to attain his level of righteousness to be under that king and to be subject to him. And those who do not measure up to his righteousness will not be granted entrance into his kingdom. And that leaves us wondering, how do we get there? How do we accomplish that? Jesus' entire time on earth, especially in the parables, concentrated on deconstructing the idea that righteousness can be earned. Because he was in a culture and a society who thought if they just do enough things right that maybe God will like them enough to let them in. But Jesus spent time with them, helping them to understand, especially in the parables, you have to deconstruct that idea you have to understand what the kingdom is really about. So he used parables to bring tension to this discussion and to, to illustrate them that righteousness comes from God alone. 
that righteousness is a gift of God, that by grace you are saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, right? This is what scripture's talking about. So your kingdom come is also talking about the reality that you recognize right now that you've got people in your life who may not know God. You might have a family member, you might have a coworker, you might have somebody in the dorm near you who doesn't have any relationship with God and you can see an evidence in that and you're asking God, God, expand your kingdom. In that same breath, what you're saying is, God, would you bring them in? Draw them in? Because God's kingdom expands as more people turn to Jesus. Do you have someone in your life right now who's far from God? I would say in the quietness of this moment, just mention their name to the Father. You can do it with a whisper of your breath. Just lift them up. There is no one who is too far from the reach of God. Do you agree with that? No one is too far from the reach of God. He can reach anyone. Just lift them up. Your responsibility is to do that. Let let me sum this all up for you. As believers, if you're a believer this morning, this applies to you. As believers in Jesus Christ, we acknowledge that God is king. Your kingdom come means doing life with God is not just about Sunday morning. It's about 2 o'clock this afternoon. It's about 8.30 tomorrow morning. It's about 7 o'clock Wednesday night. It's about everything, 24 hours a day. Your kingdom come means let me live in such a way that I become Jesus to those people who don't know him yet. Bring your kingdom. Let that righteousness be in me. That's what Jesus is driving at in the parables. So that sets us up well for next week. Next week will be the first parable. We're going to look at the wineskins when Jesus talked about nobody pouring new wine into old wineskins. So if you're catching up in the little study guide, maybe you're going to pick one up today when you leave. They're on the tables back there. That'll be lesson four, and that's where we'll be next weekend. In the meantime, let me do this for you. I'm going to send you out the door with the way that my pastor used to do it when I was a child. Would you stand with me? If you're able to stand, please stand. And I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and bow your head. And this is the way my pastor used to do it when he'd send us out with a blessing. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week in Jesus, New Hope.